Praise God. Good morning, everyone. Turn to the Song of Songs, if you will, for a moment with me. I, I want to continue this morning with where we left off last week. I had several of you comment to me about the message, about the Bride of Christ and the end times, the last days, etc. When we did this series on end times, I, I hope I get my statistics right, but I think 17 of 26 of the parables refer to you. So when Jesus was telling stories that were trying to make a point, I think there's about 26 parables, but 17 of them or so were, were about the, the last days, the end times church, which tells me that this bride, this end times revolution that takes place, this end times resurrection, is of enormous importance. It, I, we wouldn't have time to go even to scratch the surface of it. But here's another one. Song of Songs chapter 5 and verse 2. Song of Songs chapter 5 verse 2 again speaks about you and me and how we behave in the last days. Okay? This is the bridegroom returning. This is the return of Christ. I didn't make it up. It's what's written in the Bible. Song of Songs chapter 5 verse 2. I slept. I was asleep. Sleeping church, sleeping bride. Okay? Again and again, that's the image that's given. With the parable of the ten virgins, five of them are asleep. Okay? And five are awake. I slept, but my heart was awake. Listen, my beloved is knocking. And this is a picture of Jesus returning to earth and knocking on the door. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. But the church is just not with it. And he pounds on that door but the bride is asleep and he's trying to activate the church, if you like, to be evangelistic in the last days. And if I can ask you to go forward, the, 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 the bride eventually wakes up in Song of Songs and her heart is vexed. Everybody look forward a moment. The picture here, Jesus returns, he knocks the door, but we're asleep. Okay? Parable of the Ten Virgins. So some are raptured, some are left behind, and those that are left behind, wake up! And they're vexed that they were not awake when the bridegroom came. What did I do? What did I do? And they go out into the earth, they go out into the world, this is my interpretation, it's my opinion, they go into the nations of the world, and you can read chapter 5, the bride wakes up and she goes out to the nations, and she starts to tell everybody about Jesus. Where is my beloved? I missed, the, I missed the second coming. And she evangelizes and evangelizes. And then in chapter 6, verse 1, look at the effect of that evangelism when this bride was roused. These are the friends of the bride. Where has your beloved gone, most beautiful of women? Which way did he go that, uh, that we may follow him, that we may look for him? And then she goes on to explain where Christ went, if you like. She was evangelistic, an evangelistic bride in the closing moments of time. Folks, I, I don't know about you, but I want to go in the first resurrection. And when that rapture takes place, which I believe is soon, I believe, personally, I believe it will be in my lifetime, you know. Amen. My lifetime. I think Christ is going to return, you know, in these years, decades, I don't know. I don't even think we've got decades, to be honest with you. Not with the way I read scripture. So it is critical that you and I get a focus on the things that God wants us to focus on. 
Come on. Enough is enough. Enough is enough. Enough following the, the things of this world. Enough of this life. We're not going to be in this life much longer. And then we're forever in heaven. Forever, you know, we'll live in accordance with what we did on earth. And what we did with the knowledge we had. Listen, folks. When Jeff was here, Pastor Jeff was here, some of you know, some of you don't know. He was here for about four years or so. And he trained up an evangelistic group from this church, about 20 people. And I would say, during those four years, that we as a church did more evangelism than any church in the city. True? Oh, we did. John, true? I think it's very true. Probably double or triple... The amount of evangelism of any other church in Glasgow. But there's a problem. (laughs) People didn't get saved. True, John? Also true. I'm sorry to say, but it's also true. So if you do more evangelism than anybody else, and here we are, the bride, we want to get this right. Why are people not getting saved when we're out there doing our stuff? The definition of insanity? Keep on doing something that doesn't work. I believe partly, not only, and this is not a criticism of Jeff in any any way, shape, or form. Um, God bless him, and I hope God uses him wherever he goes. But I do believe our methodologies are dated. And I do believe my evangelism and yours, the methodologies can be archaic. They can be ancient. And in a world that is changing so fast and has expectations of us, that we just don't meet. We behave like we're from a different generation sometimes, the church. But the world doesn't behave that way. First slide, please. Take a look at this. I thought this was an interesting picture on the news this week. You will have seen the Australian gallivant there of Prince William, right? And it's very good. Somebody drew up this comparison of how stuffy and prudish, forgive me, but that's what they said, how stuffy and prudish Charles and Diane were in comparison to Will's, what's her name, Catherine? Catherine. Do you believe that, can you see the difference? Oh, I can see a stark difference. It's got nothing to do with age. It's got to do with attitude. This is an institutionalized, archaic presentation of the monarchy. And during this era, the monarchy was ineffective and they lost their position in the UK. They were at the lowest all-time popularity. There was a crisis in Buckingham Palace. And this chap here grew up during that time seeing an old-fashioned system trying to communicate to a modern Britain and he must have been kicking himself, screaming behind those closed doors saying, we've got to modernize. We're never going to reach the UK with this system. He's right. And so they have endeavoured to change and they're doing a very successful job. They are. Okay, the monarchy, I don't think, ever been more popular since the 50s, something like that. Next slide, please. In terms of evangelism, these are the doors of Dublin. If you've ever been to Dublin, they really love their doors, right? They've got doors all over the city and you can get posters with these on them. That's because this is a different era. This is the Georgian or the Victorian era. When people loved to go home and shut the door. Is this welcoming? <laughs> you must be kidding. It's not welcoming. That big front door, in fact, double doors, actually, another door inside that one. 
Do you know what that says? Stay away. Don't come knocking here. That's what that says. Right? And, and modern houses don't have this. Modern houses tend to have glass panels. They tend to be in the front door. They tend to be more welcoming. And so it is with our attitude in evangelism and in discipleship that when we present a Victorian-style you know, welcome to the lost or we behave in that way towards the lost, it's not welcoming, right? Not just evangelism, but also discipleship. And I want us to think again about our attitude Maybe I shouldn't share this example, but it doesn't matter now. It's so long ago. About 20 years ago or something like that, I had a discipler. And it was my first proper discipler. I was pleased. I was excited. I thought, I wonder what this is going to be like. Imagine having a discipler. So I go to the first meeting. And the first meeting was very tick-boxy. All very formal. Okay? This was actually in Singapore. All very formal. And I just, I left it disappointed and I thought, well, maybe in weeks to come, it'll become alive. Okay? So the second meeting happened. And again, I'm looking forward to it. I'm I'm a young believer. I want to get it right. I want to understand discipleship. And in the second meeting, I can't remember what they were asking me about something. How are you dealing with this or dealing with that? And I gave an answer. I said, this is how I'm dealing with it. And I said, how are you dealing with it? Big mistake. (laughs) Big mistake. Oh, I put my foot in it. And the answer, and I'm paraphrasing, the answer that came back was, oh, excuse me, I'm not here to answer your questions. You're here to answer mine. That, as far as I can recollect, that was the last discipleship session that person ever called me to. Because they thought, if you think that you're getting behind my front door, you must be joking. I'm not going to do that. Do you understand what I'm saying? People today have changed. We have... The the, the privacy of the past has dissolved. And now we have Facebook. Now we have a generation, and I believe a second generation now, coming up, who grow up with openness, honesty, vulnerability, and all of that is okay. But if the leadership within these churches, and this is part of our global problem, I believe our our senior leadership is getting old. And it's starting to show. And then it affects the number of people being saved because we're not keeping pace with the culture of our days. Okay? Not just discipleship, but evangelism. When we're out on the street, the, the dictatorial preaching of the past is not acceptable. In 1850, you could sit on your horse... And command the crowd to repent like Wesley did. And they would. Because that's the era, that's what it was like then. People did what the boss said, right? But today, they want you to be on, get off your horse, (laughs) right? Get off your horse a minute. Get down here a minute. And that's a problem. You see, the Bible colleges, the training institutions, a lot of them were formed hundreds of years ago. And what they teach is still the same. And they pride themselves on it, but then it has to fade away and new systems, new methodologies rise up. If you're a cell leader, forgive me, I haven't given you full notes this morning. If you've got a pen, take a few notes. I want to start off with a few key points about evangelism 
just throwaway points, I'm going to give a long introduction to what is actually a short message. But I don't want you to miss these key points in terms of evangelism and how you evangelize. Number one, how I think God thinks about the lost is going to affect the way I behave towards them. If I think God hates the lost, what am I going to do? I'm going to hate them. If I think God is angry at them and judging them and everything else, what am I going to do? That's exactly how I'm going to behave towards them. Well, folks, God loves the world, you know. And sometimes we think it's just the church. And it's a big mistake. It's a very big mistake. The Bible does not, of course God loves the church. But I'm talking about fundamentally, primarily. The Bible says this. For God so loved the... Exactly. Exactly. The world, the lost. Not the church. In the first instance, the reason he sent his son into the world was for the world. And we need to go out with that perspective. And believe me, that's not what you get in much of modern day evangelism. Much of, you know, the preaching that goes on out there, you can feel as if God hates everybody. True? It's true, especially with street work. Especially with street preaching. It can be diabolical. And you don't want to, you know, replicate that. Secondly, in terms of evangelizing, we're going to give you all leaflets, tracts to take away, to distribute to your friends, your neighbors, whoever God leads you to. But I warn you with my second key point this morning, um, which you can discuss in your groups. There's only one way to God. There's not two. Okay? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And do you know what that means? It means that Jesus is the way. He is not a way. He's not one of many ways. There are not many ways to get right with God. Can I hear an amen, please? Amen. There are not many ways to get right with God. And one of the greatest cultural pressures within the UK at the moment is to state what I've just stated. They don't want us to say this, do they? Huge pressure to try and get us to compromise that there are many mediators between man and God. It's okay if you follow Muhammad. It's okay if you're a Buddhist. No, it is not okay. There is one mediator. There's one cross. There's one Lord Jesus Christ. Don't compromise it. Don't take the power out of it by watering it down so that it has no power when it reaches them. Don't be ashamed of your gospel. Okay? Let them reject it if that's what they're going to do. But don't you compromise it. Because I guarantee you, as you give out those leaflets, we're going to give you leaflets. One of the most common responses you're going to get is what? I was a Buddhist. I was a Muslim. I'm not this. I'm and anyway, God loves everybody. And I'll be fine. And you need to be ready to, 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 to come back at them with a proper answer. Thirdly, did you know 95% of all Christians have never led anyone to Jesus? Wow, that's a problem. It means 95%, maybe more of you in this room, have never led anyone to Christ. Wow. Wow. Not good, is it? This is a responsibility we all have. This is a joy we can all share in. One of the fundamental functions I should be engaged in as a Christian is winning souls. Every Christian. And if I have missed that, if I'm not functioning in that, I will not be happy or healthy. 
So I plead with you, I challenge you to think again about that. I think we overcomplicate it. We do. We overcomplicate how people can be saved. We overcomplicate the gospel, especially in the West. You know, other continents are better, Africa, whatever. A much more simple approach to the gospel, which is much more effective. I remember years ago leading these two people to Christ. And I tell you what, talk about unbelief in me. There's this, uh, we ran a drop-in center for heroin addicts. And this couple came in one day. And they were the most decrepit, miserable looking two you've ever seen. Methadone with black teeth, you know, blackens your teeth. They were smelly, they were dirty. And it was like husband and wife thing, you know, Christy and Don. They were in a right mess. And they used to come in and out of our center. And they were sleeping rough. And they just looked completely dejected. And I broke one of our golden rules as a church. What I, I gave them keys. I said, look guys, you know what? Don't you tell anybody that I'm letting you do this. But there's a, there was a back door. At night, you can come here. You can let yourself in. And you can sleep in this building. Okay? Because you just look in the pits to me and they did for about six months they did and one night we were having this meeting and they, they still looked the same still looked decrepit but they came up and with great fear and trembling they approached us and they said we would like to do this we would like to become Christian so in the outside I say praise the Lord but in the inside I said it's not going to work I don't think I'll get saved just tell them the truth. i got no faith. I just don't think it's going to happen. Something wrong with me. I said, oh, but I'll pray. I'll pray the prayer anyway. So I said, okay, well, um, what do I do now? Oh, I know. I said, I'll pray the sinner's prayer. So I said to them, right, you repeat this prayer after me. So I got these two black-teethed <laughs> drug addicts standing there. And I pray the sinner's prayer. And then I pray for them. And I put my hands on their heads. Guess what happened next? Both of them burst out in tongues. Both of them. Right in, it shocked me. It shocked them. They burst into tongues. Hallelujah. Simple, simple prayer to simple people. The Bible says the common people received Christ readily, easily. You see? But we complicate this. And I, I, I look back on that. and May God restore to us the simplicity of the gospel. Amen. And the power of the gospel. That we don't talk ourselves out of it. And then have no faith. When we you know, go for people. I think God gave me that as an example. This is how simple it can be. Right? Key point number four. And this is just a confession. I find it easier to witness to people from a lower social class than those from a higher social class or educational class. And many of you do too. <laughs> if we say we're going to have an outreach in Postle Park, which is a pretty run-down area of the city, with people largely who don't have much of an education, many of you would not find that too much of a challenge. But if I said you were going to go to Oxford University and stand at the gate... We somehow find that a greater challenge, correct? Amen. We do. We look and we think. And, and, and that's not good. Because I'm not frightened of being rejected by the guy down in Postle. But I don't want to be in 
you know, suffer the rejection from an intellectual because I feel somehow humbled by that or it's something I don't want to experience. Are you with me? So we need to have a level playing field because rich, poor, educated on it, they all need the gospel. Right? Not easy, is it? I can stand here and talk to you. It's of no issue to me. It's of no sweat to me to do that. But to share the gospel with the guy beside me on the plane, still a struggle. The guy beside me in the lift, on the bus, still a struggle. And some of us are naturals at that. I'm not natural even to this day. I still struggle with it and I want to get over that because of the day in which I live. Key point number five. We'll try and get this online if we could, Stefan, because I didn't give proper notes for the cell leaders. Um, Key point number five. I love good works and I hope we continue to do good works as a church. We should. They are central to the gospel, but they're not the primary way through which the gospel is communicated. It is still through words. Okay? Go into all the world and you've got to speak. Okay? So you can be as nice as you like to your neighbors and everything else and that's a good thing. I'm not saying don't do it. Go right ahead and do it. And let's do our good works. But let's always remember that the fundamental way in which the gospel is communicated, that in your workplace, to your family, you seize a moment, an opportunity to actually say, I am a Christian and I believe you are not. When we were knocking the doors in Belfast a couple of weeks ago, every door I always open up with the same line, are you a Christian? And people appreciate that because they're not hiding. They appreciate the honesty that you don't knock the door and say, what do you think of Afghanistan or some stupid point? As if, you know, you know what I mean? That's what the JWs do. I, I detest that, to be honest. Just come and tell me, you are a Christian. I know you're a Christian. Just say it. You know? I really, really, really enjoyed that. And I found the people very willing, very open. About two years ago, Roy and myself heard of a church in Germany which had grown from nothing to 750 members in five years. That's good. That's good in Europe. It's very good in Germany because of the thinking there. Very good. So Roy and myself went over last year and we spent a week there. It's a big, big chunk out of your year. We don't have a week. But I want to know what on earth is this guy doing that's seen 750 people saved in a modern city because I want to see that happen in Glasgow. So we went there and we didn't tell them much about us. I didn't mention that I was involved in street work full time for three years. I didn't want them to know anything. I just wanted to see, what are you doing? And Marcus, the pastor, he said, well, one of the things we do is a lot of open air work. We go on the streets. I said, well, we'd love to go along. So they gave each of us a guide. And off we went into the city. It was nighttime, sort of rush hour. Again, I don't know what's going to happen. So my guy, this girl, she takes us out and said, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to walk around the city and you can follow me, but I'm going to be looking for the person that God wants me to lead to him. I said, okay, go ahead. I'm watching, I'm following, I follow along. Now there's hundreds of people passing us by. And I'm very interested to know, okay, interesting. So we go along, and she sees this guy, and she says, I'm going to stop this guy. So she goes over and stops this guy. But he wasn't really interested. So 
that didn't work out. She wasn't phased at all by that. She said, never mind, okay, refocus, refocus. And we got to a train station in central Berlin, and we were quite a ways away, about 100 yards away. There was a girl, and she was sitting down on a curbstone with her head down, and you could see the light of her phone. She was on the phone, looking down, texting or something, you see. So the girl nudged me with great confidence, and she said, this, her, it's her, come, come, come. Oh, right. And as we walked over to that girl, I thought, I wouldn't witness to someone who's on a phone. Because they're going to say, go away, right? I'm busy. I don't know if this is going to work. So we go over, and she's speaking in German, hello, hello, ever. And the girl's very slow to raise her head. But eventually, the girl on the curb does raise her head. And she's soaking with tears. She's not on the phone at all. She's pretending. She's pretending to be on the phone. Something's wrong. And they talked away in German for a moment. And then the leader, the Christian, turned to me and said, It's her father. Got out of intensive care, back into intensive care, out of intensive care. She's just got a phone call. It looks like that's it. And she doesn't know whether she's supposed to go to the hospital or go home. I've asked her if I can pray for her, and she said, please. And pray for her father, and she said, please. And at that point, I said, I'm out of here. I'm just going to go away, because a very intimate situation that developed there very quickly. Put yourself in that girl's position. You're all on your own. You've got a message saying your dad's dying. You can't go anywhere because you don't know where to go yet. And you bow your head and you're crying your eyes out, not knowing any God. When there's a tap on the shoulder from someone saying, I was walking and praying and God showed me you. How would you feel? I know which church I'd go to on Sunday. Right? So no wonder they grew from from nothing to 750 in five years. My point is, That was not lazy evangelism. Lazy or religious evangelism is when I go onto the street and I do the same thing every week. Are you with me? That's more for me than for them. Because that makes me feel better. Lazy She wasn't being lazy, she was being prophetic. And moving in the prophetic, and that is costly. And that's the type you know, of walk, of way, I want to see developed, but there's training involved in that, I understand. You know, just as a sideline, before we look at today's message, long introduction to a short message. I was thinking this morning, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. You know where God sends you. He tells you to go. Jerusalem is my family, here. Okay, those close to me. Jerusalem, Judea, Glasgow, okay, Samaria, no, no, I'm okay, (laughs) Samaria is my enemies, Samaria is my enemies, and then there's the uttermost parts of the world, and I think we do, maybe many of us have told our families about Christ, and maybe we've prayed for the city, and even been involved in evangelism in the city, and maybe we talk a lot about missions, and we're in a church that's certainly committed to missions, folks, which one's missing? Begins with E. Enemy. Enemies. And it's like a car. You know, if I take the starter motor out, the thing doesn't work. You need to have all the bits. 
And until I wholeheartedly believe this, something remains dysfunctional within a Christian until they witness to their enemies. And the person that you don't like in your office, the person in your family who doesn't speak to you anymore, that can be the very person that you will lead to Christ. But because they're your enemy, you need to learn to build bridges. But Christ specifically tells us to go and do exactly that. Right? So, simple first opening point, really. I want to be prophetic in my evangelism more than ever. Turn to Romans chapter 1, verse 22. Although they claim to be wise... They became fools and they exchanged the glory of a mortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. <coughs> Many years ago, I was in a party, a house party. I hadn't been saved long. And I was at this place with my sister. And I was witnessing some, one of the first few times that I'd ever done that. I was excited. And I was talking to this girl at the party. And the only thing she could talk about was her boyfriend. About how brilliant he was, how magnificent he was, how fantastic he was. And I was trying to get the gospel across to this girl. And at a certain moment in that conversation, I remembered that line. And I quoted that line to her. <laughs> I said, you know what you've done? You've put away the image of Almighty God, just like it says here. You've put God aside to worship Him. You're worshipping a person. That's what you're doing. That's exactly what the Bible says we do. You know, I may as well have shot her with a double-barrel shotgun. It was powerful. You know, just like the scripture says, cutting right in two. She was totally destroyed and undone by that statement. It was the right word. It was the right word, right person, right occasion. Prophetic evangelism. Right? Heading the target. Not lazy evangelism. And I want us to think, as we accept the responsibility of being the bride in the last days, God, today, would you help us discern and assess and consider and think about people instead of just churning out the same pattern. Amen. Amen. So that when you go to work tomorrow, or you go to college tomorrow, wherever you find yourself, that when you're approaching people, you become almost like a mind reader. That you look at them and you're able to figure out what they're thinking. You're able to figure out where they're at. And then you speak into that very situation. Matthew chapter, four, uh, Matthew chapter 9 verse 4. Look at this. Matthew chapter 9 verse 4. I want you all to see this. So turn if you've got it there. Look at this. It's a great scripture. I'm glad it's in the Bible. Matthew chapter 9, verse 4. It says, Jesus, knowing their thoughts. Reading their mind, right? He then spoke into the situation in accordance with what he knew they were thinking in their minds. Matthew chapter 12. Look at this. Matthew chapter 12, verse 25. Here's Jesus again doing the same thing, Matthew 12, 25. Jesus knew their thoughts. Jesus knew what they were thinking and then he spoke into that, prophetically guiding them, 
rebuking them, encouraging them, whatever it was. And that's all I'm saying is that we follow in the same footsteps and our ministry should have some parallels here. But that's going to take us to have a sharp spirit. This is the story of the prodigal son. It's the steps that he took. We all know the parable very well. I won't read it. You, you know the story. Once upon a time, there was a father who had two sons and the younger son, blah, blah, blah. And these were, I thought, I got this years ago and I've kept it all this time because I thought it was the best description of his descent to desperation and his ascent to rejoicing. And I can find, I can trace my steps up and down that pit many times in my lifetime, right? And my point is, when you're witnessing to people, there's no point in talking to someone as if they're in realization when actually they're still stuck in desire. Okay? And we should develop the ability to assess where a person is at that I'm talking to. Are you with me? To meet someone and not just give out a garb, not give out a rehearsed whatever, but actually make an assessment of what they're thinking. Like, look, look at the first one. We all know the prodigal story. He had a desire to go off to a distant land, blah, blah, blah. So what do you do in that situation? Notice that the father didn't do one single thing to stop him. Not a word. Not a word recorded that the father said this, that. That's a wise father. Because sometimes they just got to get it out of their system. And sometimes you got to give people time to fail. Right? But what do we do with people when we know the door is not open? We know that they're being led astray. What do we do with them when that desire is alive in them? Sometimes we don't have enough time to cook food. And I will say, you know, in a hurry going somewhere. And I'll say to Jeanette, I, uh... I don't know what we're going to do for food today. Do you want a McDonald's? And she'll say, yes. Yes. I say, well, what, what do you want? Do you want a double cheeseburger? Yes. Do you want fries? Yes. Do you want a cookie? Yes. A milkshake? Yes. And I get all that stuff and I give it to her and she eats it all. And then she says, I didn't want that. That's what she says. I didn't want that. I said, you said you want, no, I didn't want it. You made me eat that. You made me eat it. I didn't want it. And she had done this many times to me. I didn't want that. We shouldn't eat that. But you said you wanted it. Do you know what that was? What is it? It's a desire. You had a desire. And that desire was real. But you were asking yourself the wrong question. You see, Jeanette, next, next time you have a desire for a McDonald's, you should not ask yourself, do I want this? It's the wrong question. You do. They all do. <laughs> right? The question is not that. It's the wrong question. What you need to ask yourself is, when I've eaten it, then will I want it? Right? And what's the answer? Don't say yes again. You're not supposed to say yes again. The answer is no. And what do you do with someone who is caught in desire, because they're all over the world, they're half of the people or more that we meet on the street. The, 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 the only thing you can do is pretty similar to the father is you can say to them, listen chap, <laughs> that, that desire, you need to ask yourself about what's leading you in life. And you need to ask yourself, if you actually get what you desire, then will you want it? That's the question. And it's probably the only real way of dealing with someone in that position. 
Secondly, you will find people who are making a decision, which we're going to look at tonight. And that's a, a hard thing to do. I played snooker for years, and you've got to make a decision about which ball you're going to pop. But it's never, ever, ever, ever about the ball you're going to pop. Because you can pop that ball, and you're going to lose the game. What's it about, Tony? <laughs> it's about three shots on, right? When I pop this ball, then what am I going to do? And then what am I going to do? And the guys who win these championships are the ones who are able to do that the best. And you need to look at people. It saddens me, you know. I like to make decisions collectively. I like to make decisions together with other pastors, with other leaders, with friends. But when, pe when people start to withdraw, and they don't want to talk to you about their decisions, they put themselves in isolation, like the prodigal, don't want to talk about it. The hand's up. Talk to the hand. is what they say, isn't it? Right? That's a bad sign. It's a sign of regression. It's a, time, a sign of depression. People are not willing to engage with others. Scripture says wisdom is found in the counsel of many. And when you see people, you need to be able to discern that this is a person who's just about to make the wrong decision. And then you prophetically speak into that. The next one is much more serious. It's when they depart. Uh, they, this is difficult. This is much harder to deal with because, wow, things change. The, the, the next two steps go together. Departure and deception work hand in hand. Eyes forward, please. In many churches over many years, I have seen this too, and it would break my heart. Someone comes in and they're making a, a wrong decision, you know, but they're still in the church. They're still here. And they're still listening and we're still talking to them. But they decide, they get stubborn, and they decide, say, to depart. They leave the church and they're gone. Whilst they were under the cover, they were able still to make wise decisions. But see when they go out there. No, sir. Deception kicks in. And you watch the decisions that people make once they leave. Because departure leads to deception. I hope you understand that. Appreciate the cover of the church. I do. I appreciate that my decisions will be guarded as long as I stay under a proper roof. But once I start putting my decisions in, in isolation, it will lead me to transfer my affections, as it were. People depart in their affections long before they ever depart relationships or churches. In other words, they're still here every week. But they actually left about a year ago. Are you with me? And so it is in many homes. The person's already gone. They just happen to be there. And you need to be able to spot that in relationships. To spot that with the people you speak to. To spot that you know, removal of affection. As Paul said, I have not withdrawn my affection from you. You have withdrawn your affection from me. That's a departure. And Paul's warning is that you're going to end up in deception. And then your defeat is next. And it's, it's a sad thing. I hear, you know, this person left or that person left. And then the next thing you know, they're making crazy decisions. Stupid, stupid things that they never would have done if they had remained undercover. Deception is powerful and we're all susceptible to it. You shouldn't think of yourself as above it because you're not. Neither am I. And that leads to defeat. But, you know, defeat is different and despair is different for everybody. For some people... Despair and desperation, you know, despair is, is very little, you know. 
a bad day and this despair and they're ready to change their lives. But for other people, you know, the bottom of the pit is a very, very low place. We're all different. And when you work indeed with some of the heroin addicts, you really realize how low, low is for some. Now, we're all different in this room. Jeanette, you learn easily. She learns the easy way. That's good. I don't. Sorry. I have to learn everything the hard way. Stupid. I've been like that all my life. It takes desperation for me. And I should know better. I should know better. See, when, I, when you got saved, you wandered into Christianity very early. I didn't. She was attending church, and she went in the easy way. Where did I go? Prodigal. I had to have my life nearly destroyed. I had to be at the bottom of that pit, which was a low place for me, before I would listen or turn or receive wisdom. I'm not alone in here. <laughs> Some of you are like that as well. Right? And it saddens me, you know, you meet people and for some people, it could be their finances. They have to be completely and utterly broke before they will listen to any financial advice. Or their marriage has to be right at breaking point before they will receive help. Or their ministry, or their kids gone wild before they will intervene. For some people, when they get that habit, like I have got in my life, I warn you, if that's you, listen to me, I warn you. If it took desperation to bring you to Christ, just be careful that it doesn't take desperation to keep you there and to cause you to grow because God is committed to your growth. And I hope it doesn't take a life of constant, you know, situations of desperations over and over again for you. That's not His will. There is an easier way here. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. So follow it and change. The way out is beautiful. Look at these R's and the, the first one is the most significant and the most important. It's the realization. I had this conversation with Jeff many, many times. Because right at the beginning when he first came, they, they would have their Bible, you know, and the stand and would preach. And we came back here for the feedback after the street work. And I would often say, do you know what? You're offering a solution, which is the second stage, the resolution. You're offering a resolution to people who haven't had any realization. You're saying Jesus died on the cross and they don't even know they're a sinner. Are you with me? You're one step ahead of that crowd because you're coming from a religious background. And don't do that. That's very, very outdated. Many of these people have no concept of what you're talking about. We need to bring them to a realization of who they are, that God created them like Paul did in the book of Acts with a people group that had no history, Christian history. And secondly, we bring them to the resolution. We introduce the gospel because they realize that they need it. Right? And then up that track, we can take them. But my, my overriding, overarching point today of all points is I want to I modernize my evangelism. And I want to be able to walk through the streets of this city and any other city and be able to spot the person like the Ethiopian eunuch, like the woman at the well. Nothing religious there with Jesus, was there? With the woman at the well, he read her mind, read her life, spoke and told her. And she said, come and meet the man who told me everything about me. 
Not everybody is going to be in desperation that you meet. They're all at different places. And good evangelism will assess that. And you will see yourself on that sheet. I think, what was the lowest point in my life? Yesterday. No, just joking. What was the lowest point of my life? Um, in, in retrospect, the, the, the pit of desperation for me, the pit of desperation for me was in Liverpool about, well, about 12 years ago. I don't think I have ever been, I'm not a depressing person, I'm very happy actually. Um, but I was, I was depressed. I was really depressed. So out of character. So not like me. And I left you at home. And I went. It was a beautiful day. Sunny day. And Liverpool was packed. And I, I was walking down Bold Street. And the crowds were thronging in that street. And there was a group of people evangelizing. Thank God they weren't standing up preaching the same old stuff. Thank God that in that crowd, there was someone looking for someone. Because I was someone who needed someone that day. Probably more than any other moment in my life. And I started to cry. I began to cry profusely as I made my way through that crowd. And you know what? I looked for an alleyway. I looked for somewhere that I could hide so that I could cry. Now listen folks, look at me. Eyes forward. Keep Pay attention. As I cried and I looked for somewhere to hide in a thronging crowd, this is exactly what happened. A booming voice shouted in the crowd, Michael McKeever! I was, I thought, what, God? And I'm crying. And then again, Michael McKeever! I thought, goodness me, what's going on? And this guy, evangelism team, down on the street, he and his brother and some others from Frontline Church pushed through the crowd. I know you! And I was gobsmacked. I sort of half recognized his face. I know you! And I'm crying. I'm thinking, okay, okay, you know me. And he said, you saved my brother's life. Do you remember? And I couldn't remember. You saved his life. He was desperate. And he told me this day, it was a long story, it was a homeless meeting and I had helped his brother and his brother ended up getting saved and actually full-time evangelist today in Frontline Church, the same church he was from. And he said to me, I remember after him explaining what had happened after that meeting, he said to me, come and join us in our evangelism today. And I said, no, (laughs) today I don't need to. Today I got what I needed. I was just about to fall. And he rescued me. He sent you to me. To encourage me. And to let me know that he is there. But he did it through a person. He did it through a person who was walking through the crowd. Looking for the woman at the well. Looking for the girl on the phone. Looking for that one with the prophetic right word for the right occasion. Hallelujah. Praise God. We spent years helping people, rescuing people from their moment of desperation. And I can testify this, folks. In my moment of desperation, he did not leave me alone. But he sent someone. 
And that word was just enough to lift me and keep me going. So I ask you, life is difficult enough as it is, folks. But it's even more difficult if you don't do what you're called to do or made to do like we said last week. I am the bride of Christ living and breathing in the, in the earth in the last days. And I want to be the function, to be and to function like the Song of Songs bride. Who tells everyone about Jesus in a winsome way, so much so that they say, take me to your Lord. We want to know him also.